Am I on? I am. If it's okay with you, I'm going to talk from down here today. I've got a table. So you're a little surprised to see me up here speaking on a Sunday morning, are you? Not as surprised as me. <laughs> so I'd like to start by first apologizing. Apologizing that I could have been better prepared. I don't know how long this is going to go, but it could be five or ten minutes. I, just, I wish I had more material prepared, so just apologizing. I'd also like to apologize for having too much material. I could go an hour and a half. I don't know. Just covering all my bases here. <clears throat> One of the things I have found as I've gone through this is I have no idea how long it's going to take to get through the material. I sit and read it. I can read it through real fast, but <clears throat> according to my son, who gives me advice on these things, this could be an hour. I don't know. <clears throat> so let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us to get together, to open your word and to learn. We ask that you would prepare our hearts, that you would guide my words, and that uh, everything that goes forth today will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name. So I'm going to try doing this from a tablet. It's a small tablet. We'll see how my battery holds up, but I have paper. Could because this is wisdom to be prepared. So I found myself recently um, recalling Paul's words to Timothy in his second letter. And he writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. And that's from the King James. I'm sorry, but that's the way I learned it. So it stays King James. It doesn't feel right in any other version to me. The rest of it's not King James, don't worry. As I thought about this statement, something occurred to me that for some reason, I had never crossed my mind. Something I completely missed. <clears throat> so let me tell you the story. Imagine that you're in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was when Paul wrote this letter to him. Imagine that you are the one that's hosting Timothy in your home, okay? So Timothy is staying in your spare room. You decide that you're going to minister to Timothy by getting him a copy of the scriptures. So you hook up your donkey cart, off you go into town. You come around the corner, there's the store, the Zondervinius Familiacus Bookstoricus. <laughs> Ephesus is province of Rome, so we have to speak Latin. And Zondervan's been around longer than you think. So you purchase a copy of the scriptures for Timothy, load it up in your cart, and you head home. Remember, Mr. Gutenberg hasn't invented the printing press yet, so you just grab a pile of scrolls and you're on your way back home with that. That's why you need a cart. Now I paint this little picture because that's just the way my mind works sometimes. It's helpful. But here's the part I missed. Paul wrote that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it. 
Every bit of it, right? I've always read this passage, tucked neatly in the latter half of the New Testament, and thought, this is good. This is right. This is a foundational truth. We need to know this. We need to remember this. The part I missed is that when Paul wrote this, the New Testament didn't exist. Ever thought about that? It's true. It didn't exist. Ask Wade. He knows. He talked about this. I did a little reading on this, and I've listened to a few podcasts on this. As far as the Gospels were concerned, Matthew and Mark may have been written by this time, but hadn't been circulated. Luke and Acts may have been written by this time. There's a good chance that they were. But again, the question is, how much did they circulate at this point? John's Gospel wouldn't be written for several years yet, probably another 30 years before it was written. Letters like Timothy were circulated at least in the local gatherings, but not widely across the known world. None of these writings were yet regarded as Scripture. It wasn't for another hundred years. Again, Wade, check me on this. It wasn't for another hundred years that there was any attempt to assemble a canon of scriptures. A canon would be the collection of books, right? No canons were assembled and called the New Testament at that time. A hundred years later, some guys attempted to do that. But oddly, these were the heretics that were doing it because... They gathered all the books that the church was regarding, the writings that the church was regarding, put their writings into it and said, look, Scripture. It wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 400 A.D., 400 A.D., that the New Testament as we know it today was defined as the canon of Scripture. So today we regard the New Testament and the Old Testament as Scripture and all given by the inspiration of God. So Paul's admonition to Timothy was basically, study the Old Testament, dude. Everything you need is in there. I mean, go back to the, to the scripture that we read. The Old Testament is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's all there in the Old Testament. Yes, we no longer live under the law. We live under grace. The law has been fulfilled. When Jesus hung on the cross and pronounced, it is finished, it was finished. The sacrifice paid it all. We just sang that. Jesus paid it all. We've been redeemed. But I'm challenged by this to understand, to study and understand more and more the Old Testament, the foundations of our faith as they're revealed in the Old Testament. Is that new to anyone else? Is that anyone else not thought of that before? Am I alone in that? Maybe I missed it? So actually, this has very little to do with anything else I'm planning to talk about today. Um, I'll say that most of the scripture we will reference will be in the Old Testament. Um, But other than that, no connection. Sorry. (laughs) I just thought you might find my little aha moment uh, uh, interesting. So today, what I do want to talk about is a bit of a history lesson. 
it'll be a little bit of a whirlwind tour, so hang on. Four times in Scripture, we find that the law is given, it's read aloud to the people of God. At least four times that I've found. If you know of more, let me know. Each of these times is a unique event with unique purpose behind it. And I want to walk through these four events. The first, is the one that will first come to mind, is when the law was given originally the first time. So this account begins in Exodus 19, when the priests and people gather at Mount Sinai, they're preparing themselves. Three days later, after they begin their preparations, God descends to the time of the mountain, to the top of the mountain, and Moses is called up. And on that day, Moses begins to receive the law from God. <clears throat> sometimes it's just Moses there. Sometimes it's Moses with Aaron. Sometimes Joshua is involved. Sometimes the elders, although the elders are never called up to the mountain, they're called to the base of the mountain. But it's not a quick process. As I read the account, it's not clear how long Moses was up on the mountain uh, for the first time. Remember, there were two times. Uh, clearly, it seemed like a long time to the people that were left behind. That's how we get the whole golden calf um, story. <clears throat> and Moses comes down the mountain, sees the golden calf. His anger is roused, smashes the tablets. We're all familiar with that story. So Moses goes up to the mountain a second time. Forty days and forty nights. Again, this is not a quick process. And after that, Moses comes down and sets about having the tabernacle built based on the instructions that he's received from God. It's built, up and, it's built and set up for the first time one year after they left Egypt. Remember, they left Egypt at Passover time, actually the first Passover. That was the event that got them out of Egypt. They didn't have the tabernacle until one year after that. So the nation of Israel reigns encamped at Mount Sinai for somewhere, I think, around two years. You can read it different ways, but it sounds like about two years. And they're instructed in how to live. They get the law from Moses. And if you go through that time, there's times of successes, times of failures. And their successes are rewarded by God according to the law. And their failures are punished, sometimes quite severely. So the account of this time begins in Exodus 20, goes all the way through the rest of Exodus, all the way through the book of Leviticus, into the book of Numbers, all the way through the end of chapter 10 of Numbers. Relax. We're not going to read that today. But that's the original giving of the law, first event. Second occasion. second occasion is where the law is read to the people. It occurs as they get ready to cross the Jordan, moving into the promised land. Prior to the crossing, Israel has disobeyed God. Um, they disobeyed him at Kadesh, in the wilderness of Paran, where they were sending up the spies into the land. God said, go, I'll go before you. They chose to believe the ten spies rather than Joshua and Caleb, they chose to reject what God said, what God promised. 
and they suffer the consequences of that sin. They've now wandered the wilderness for 40 years until every last person has died except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. A whole generation passes because of that sin. So I said the penalties can be severe. So Moses is told by God at this time that he will not be permitted to enter the promised land, but before he dies, he speaks to the nation and gives them God's law once again. This time it's a bit different. The nation's been living under the law for the past 40 years. It's not exactly new. They're familiar with it. They have the practices. They've begun to build traditions. It's been 40 years. So you might think it's a bit of a refresher course. But it's more than that, a lot more. This is an occasion. Again, they wander the wilderness for 40 years. They're about to cross the river. They're about to go into their new home. The, <clears throat> the public reading and recitation of the law at that time underscores the fact that the law, the covenant, is foundational to who they are. It underscores that at this time. Moses completes the reading of the law, which is essentially the entire book of Deuteronomy. Again, not reading at all. And he addresses his people with these words from Deuteronomy 29. We'll start in verse 10. <clears throat> you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, and the one who chops your wood, and the one, you draws your, who, the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not, to you, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. He's establishing a new covenant. He's reestablishing everything that they had before with newness. Like I said, it's, it's a little bit different than just remembering what has been told before. But this is why they've gathered. Jehovah is their God and they are his people. They know it and the nations around them know it. So this is a time of renewing, reaffirming, and reestablishing their covenant with God. So that's the second time that we have the law given now. The third occasion where the law is read to the people follows some tragic and profound failures on the part of the people of God. It occurs toward the end of the kingdom of Judah the nation has suffered through cycles of good and bad kings, mostly bad. Many of you will remember from our study of the book of Judges when Pete was here. <clears throat> In that study, we saw over time God working through Judges that grew increasingly progressively more flawed and with a people increasingly rejecting and contending against God's kingship, pleading instead for a man as king like the other nations around them had. The recurring theme said it over and over is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We remember that. 
parallels can certainly be drawn between the progression of judges and the progression of kings, both of Israel and of Judah. Both have dark periods intermixed with flashes of hope, but ultimately leading, leading in a slow, downward spiral characterized by an, by an unmistakable, unmistakable rejection of God. A rejection of his law, a rejection of his ways. The third reading, reading occurs during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was the great-grandson grandson of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was considered a good king. Had his flaws, but he was good. Hezekiah was succeeded by Manasseh, his son, who was good, no, who was bad, evil, but then repented and was good. I have to keep track of these. This is... Manasseh was succeeded by his son Ammon, who was bad. And then Josiah, at the ripe old age of eight, became king. Josiah has the distinction of being the last good king in the land of Israel. There's actually two parallel accounts of this um, time recorded for us. One is the end of 2 Kings, the other is the end of 2 Chronicles. We'll go with Chronicles today. So we're going to read from chapter 34, and we'll be reading a bunch. You may want to follow along, or, hey, we have it up there. Great. So let's begin with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or the left, for in the eighth year of his reign, when he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of his father, David, the God of David, his father. In the twelfth year, he began to, produce, pur, to <clears throat> purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. He continued to do this all across Israel and then returned back to Jerusalem. Then in his eighteenth year, he turned his attention to repairing the temple. So let's jump to verse 14. While they were bringing out the money and had brought, that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law the Lord had given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Saphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law and in, in the house of the Lord. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Jump down to verse 18. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. So imagine the picture here. The book of the law wasn't known. They'd forgotten about it. And they discover it in the temple as they're trying to clean things out. That's how far the nation had descended and departed from God's ways. Josiah heard the law and was immediately grieved and broken. He recognized it as God's word, his law, and clearly knew it was not being followed. But think about this. Josiah had been, since he was young, seeking the God of David since he was 16 years old. Since he was 20, he had been purging the high places of idols, yet he had no direct knowledge of the law. The law had been forgotten. 
it is reasonable to conclude that Joshua's grief was driven, at least in part, by his discovery that he didn't know the law and didn't follow it. But I think the greater part of his grief was probably driven by the realization and the understanding that this was why the nation was in the shape that it was in. Israel had long, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had long been destroyed by Assyria, didn't really exist anymore. And Judah's, kept, Judah's captivity in Babylon had already been prophesied. So let's continue in verse 20. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Aikam, <clears throat> the son of Shaphan, Abdan, I'm trying to pronounce these names right, but whatever I say, by the way, is right today because it's, I got the microphone, so. <clears throat> so my pronunciation must be correct. Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah went and inquired of Huldah the prophetess, and he, and she, and he was told by Huldah that disaster was coming, but that Josiah, because he had humbled himself, would be spared he would rest with his fathers, and he would die in peace. If you remember Josiah's great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah, he'd received almost the same word about his future from Isaiah the, the, the prophet. Ironically, when you read that account, Hezekiah's response is like, hmm, okay, at least I get to die in peace, which kind of leaves you wanting more. What? It seems like a less of a response than you would want. Josiah's response was different and so much better. Let's continue in verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and, all, and with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin join in it and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations of all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. He made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Wow, that's a different response. Josiah himself read the word, read the word of the book of the covenant to the people, and then stood and made a covenant with God, then made all who were present join him in that covenant. 
That's a moment. The account continues with Josiah celebrating Passover. Down to verse 18. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. That's a long time. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Josiah and the people of Israel reestablished covenant with God and celebrated their God. From that time, the land enjoyed about a dozen more years of peace. And then, of course, Josiah dies and was followed by four more evil kings, and Judah was taken into captivity. So we've seen the giving of the law, we've seen the law re-given at the crossing of the Jordan, and now we've seen the law re-given again by Josiah toward the end of the time of Judah. The fourth time is immediately following the captivity in Babylon. Nehemiah has returned and has been building the walls of Jerusalem back up. He and his people with him have been working diligently to complete the rebuilding of the city's wall to create a defensible position against the enemies in the area. We read that a little over, little over 42,000 of the people had returned back to Israel at this time. Ezra, a priest and scribe, has also returned. Ezra has been authorized and charged by the Persian, Persian king, Artaxerxes, to rebuild the temple and reestablish the sacrifices in the temple. The king had given Ezra what amounted to a blank check. He said, whatever you need, go. In the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, we read all the people gathered together and told Ezra to bring the book of the law. So in chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they, were, what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Jump down to verse 7. Also, a bunch of guys, the Levites, um, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave them the sense of it so that they understood the reading. The account states that a raised wooden platform for Ezra and the Levites was built for this purpose, and Ezra read to the people just like in the time of, and just like in the time of Josiah, when they heard it, they wept. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law, and they found found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is the feast of booths. And all the assembly of 
of those who returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. So we see that the people are moved by the word, by the word of the law, moved to tears, moved to change. They're moved so much that they come back the very next day, not to hear it again, but to study it now. They're digging deeper. Ezra and the Levites with him are there to assist the people to assure that they accurately understand the words of the law. Just back up to this Feast of Booths things for a little bit. Feast of Booths, for anyone who's forgotten what that is, includes a period of time, about seven days, where the people are commanded to dwell in booths. These would be made of wood or branches, but that they constructed, and they would construct these outside their home or on the roof of their home. It reminded the people, this is what God had commanded, and it was to remind the people of how they lived when they first left Egypt. I have no answer. I can't explain why. Why would they have not done this since the time of Joshua? One of those failings, perhaps. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, then begins with an accounting of the time of repentance. Includes an amazing and beautiful prayer by the Levites. I'm not going to read that today, but I would encourage you to find a few moments to read that prayer. The chapter and the prayer conclude with the establishment of a covenant. Verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Again, this is the time of renewing, reaffirming, and establishment of covenant again. So let's step back and quickly recap these four events for just a minute. First, the law is given through Moses, and the covenant is established. This is often referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. Then we see three additional times that the law is given, and there's renewal and reestablishment of covenant with God. In each case, we see the time of rebellion, a time of turning away from God that has terrible consequences. In each case, we see the law is being given, and there is weeping as a result. A recognition of guilt, a time of remorse and sorrow, for what is, grief for what has been lost. Then a time of repentance. And finally, in each case, we see, we see the establishment of covenant, a resolve to live according to God's word, according to God's law. So it's easy to sit back and look at the history of Israel, look at the kings, and in particular, look at the progression and the cycle of good and bad kings, and just shake our heads. It's, okay, it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but it's easy to do. How could it happen? How could there possibly have gone so wrong? Something that occurs to me that might be worth considering is this. Did you know that when Israel had a king, which Moses discouraged but ultimately knew it would happen, but when they had a king, that king had a very specific thing that he was supposed to do. He was supposed to write out for himself by hand, okay, a copy of the law, 
have it checked by the Levites. And then every day that he ruled, he was to read that law, to study that law, and know that law. That was his job. That's you read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. That's what the king was supposed to do. Just consider the effect that the word of the law had in each of these cases that we looked at and imagine what the palaces could have looked like on a daily basis. Curiously, we have no direct... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There it is. Curiously, we have no direct evidence, no direct record that any of the kings follow this particular practice. I could reasonably, I suppose it could be reasonably argued that David might have been one of those kings that did. And I only say that because of all of his writings in the Psalms, his writing containing, um, you know, calls to the heart of God, he was close to God. That was what drove David. So he may have been one of the kings that that actually was true for. But he's the only one that even comes close to having any, any record of. Do you think history might have looked a little bit different if that had been the practice of all the kings? I know it's really productive to spend that much time contemplating things that might have been, but still. As I look at these three events where there is renewal and reestablishment of the covenant with God, I'm impressed by one thing each of them have in common. The renewal is brought about simply by reading the word of the law. Simply. <laughs> there are no prophets involved. All the prophets have a role and a purpose. Just the word. Three moments that altered the course of a nation of Israel, and it was just the word that brought about that change. Is anyone else reminded of the words of Hebrews 4, verse 12? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the word of God can do. That's why the people were moved to tears. That's why they wept. That's the power of the word of God. Or look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Reading God's word, not a trivial, trivial exercise. It's the power of God. It changes you just reading God's word. These three events are clear examples of the truth, the truth of these verses. I could probably find more that would go along with that. But And, and just a thought here. In Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active. At the time Hebrews was written, you know what the word of God was? Old Testament. So let's take a, a, a quick last look back to the history books. We'll go to the end of Second Chronicles. In the, in the last chapter of Second Chronicles, Josiah has died and was buried with his fathers, as Huldah the prophetess had prophesied. Josiah's son becomes king, does evil, is carried away to Egypt by King Necho. Josiah's second son is made king in his place, does evil, 
and is carried off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. That son's two sons, after him, were successively put in the role of king. Both do evil. Both are carried off as well. The spiral at that point is complete. Those are the last kings in the land of Israel. Then the author here records in chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of God rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And here we see at the very end, this is how Judah has survived and endured for so very long. It's due to the compassion that God has for his people. Do you all remember a few months back when Rick Perhai was here? Rick spoke specifically about the passion of the compassion of God. He used Hosea chapter 11, which paints just a powerful and beautiful picture of God's compassion for his people. Here it is again, alluding back to that compassion. God keeps coming back and back and back to his people because of his compassion. It wasn't tolerance. That's different. God will not and cannot tolerate sin. But God kept sending messengers. He kept calling and pursuing his children. The last five words here in this verse are perhaps the most sobering and terrifying words I can imagine. Following these words, God's judgment comes. Nebuchadnezzar comes against Judah and kills or carries off the people to Babylon. And sadly, the kingdom of Judah ends. It's probably reasonable to assume most of the people of Israel at this point that were left in Judah, most of them were not carried off, they were killed. I should caution here that the words are not here to show that God gave up or that he could or would give up. Think back to the conversation Abraham had with God regarding the destruction of Sodom. Abraham asked God if there was 50 righteous, would he relent? Would he destroy it? God said he would not. The questioning continues, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He would not. Just prior to this verse, the author records that all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful. I think it's more accurate to conclude here that God has no more people left in Judah that would hear from his messengers. So judgment came. As devastating as this is, it's not the end. God's compassion does not end. Seventy years later, as the people return, Ezra steps up onto a wooden platform. He begins to read 
pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, but Father, we thank you also for your compassion for your people. We ask, Father, that you would keep us mindful of staying in your word, but keep us mindful also of your love for us and your desire to keep relationship and covenant with us. Father, we just ask this in your precious name. Being the first Sunday of the month, we have a time of communion. If you haven't gotten a cup, they're in the back. You could get one. I won't be offended. Just a bit of a reminder about communion and the time. Remember that this is Passover time. Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Passover was when Israel had also left Egypt. That was the first Passover. And there was a sacrifice. The lamb was slain and sacrificed for the people for their sin to cover them so that they would then be able to escape and be set free from their bondage in Egypt. I think it's no coincidence that Jesus is brought back to, to Jerusalem at that time. That's when he was crucified. He became that sacrifice for us. So I'm reading from Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the, the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. Again, he knows the significance, significance of the Passover time and was very intentional about this. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the vine until the time of the kingdom has come. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Oh, I have not prepared ahead of time here. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup. After they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is, my, it is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for this time. And 
again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what you teach us through your word. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice and for what it does for us. Making us whole, making us righteous, and making us acceptable to you. Father, we thank you for this in your name. Amen.